3: Tuesday morning, the 30th of January. Good morning, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. More landlords are leaving the property market than the number actually entering it. That's according to the housing charity threshold. The result, as you might guess, is uh, there are fewer properties available for anyone looking to rent. The upshot of that is that if you receive a notice to quit and have to move out of a place that you are renting, it can be necessary to impossible to find another place to live. And that's part of the reason for Threshold receiving over 12,000 queries between October and December of last year. Its Q4 report which is published today shows that over a three-month period Threshold supported some 18,129 individuals. Gareth Redmond is research and policy officer with Threshold. And a very good morning you, Gareth, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, I take it that many of uh, the people that came to you last year, in the last quarter of uh, last year, as the case may be, were in what they thought was an impossible situation.
2: Well, good morning, Michael, and thank you very much for having me on. And yeah, uh, I, that, that, is, that is completely true, and in the case studies of the report, the one that really stands out being um, Aiden and Hazel being a classic case of where they had the they, they, their aim was to ultimately try purchase a home for themselves, and they had they had been on track, and then suddenly kind of, COVID came along, wiped out the savings, and then the landlord suddenly wanted wanted to retire. It's not okay. To,
3: On occasion. Okay, Gareth, uh, we've a a very bad phone line. I think um, uh, we'll try to improve on that line. And uh, if you don't mind, uh, we'll come back to you in just a a couple of moments' time. Uh, Gareth uh, was about to tell us about the tenant in situ scheme and a specific example in relation to that. But it has been an historic night overnight, uh, as you've probably been hearing already this morning. We're all waking up to the news uh, that there is white smoke, if you like coming from Belfast. Uh, The DUP met in secret, or kind of in secret, until somebody leaked everything that was being said in a room in an unknown location. Uh, And uh, then all of uh, the conversation was tweeted. But anyway, the upshot of it all was uh, that the DUP have decided that they are going to return to Stormont and take their seats.
4: I am pleased to report that the party executive has now endorsed the proposal's that I have put to them. The party has concluded that subject to the binding commitments between the Democratic Unionist Party and the UK government being fully and faithfully delivered as agreed, including the tabling and passing of new legislative measures in Parliament and final final agreement on a timetable, the package of measures in totality does provide a basis for our party to nominate members to the Northern Ireland Executive, thus seeing the restoration of the locally elected institutions. We recognise that significant further advances have been achieved through these negotiations, and the details of the new package or measures will be published by the UK Government in due course. This package, I believe, safeguards Northern Ireland's place in the Union and will restore our place within the UK internal market. It will remove checks for goods moving within the UK and remaining in Northern Ireland and will end Northern Ireland automatically following future
3: EU laws. And that's the leader of uh, the Democratic Unionist party, Geoffrey Donaldson speaking to reporters just before one o'clock this morning saying that the DUP are going to take up uh, the seats uh, they were elected to. Uh, It it is uh, pretty dramatic after two years and why they're doing that well there is some confusion as we'll be hearing later in the programme because Geoffrey Donaldson has said this morning that there will not be a border in the Irish Sea so where is the border between the European Union and the United Kingdom actually going to be uh, I think uh, there'll be a, a lot of people across the European Union who'll be a- very interested to hear the answer to that question but let's uh, return to our opening piece and indeed over 18,000 people being supported by Threshold across uh, the last three months of uh, last year. I think we've improved on that line. Thanks for coming back to us Gareth. Gareth Redmond, Research and Policy Officer with a Threshold uh, and Gareth, you were going to tell us about the experience of Aidan and Hazel, a couple uh, who found themselves in that unthinkable situation of being evicted with nowhere to go but it has an, a happy ending this particular story
2: yeah sorry about the very poor connection earlier but yeah with the case of Aiden and Hazel uh, it's it's a, it's an all too common case of where they were, they've been living in their home for 15 years. And the landlord would not to sell because he was getting a age of where he wanted to retire. And a couple of years before before COVID, they were in a healthy position of where they were able to purchase. They lost their jobs due to COVID and they you know, into their savings to, to, to continue to, to continue to pay the rent. And then when then after that, they were unable to be in a position to purchase. And luckily the tenant in situ scheme was available for
3: them. Okay, uh, and are councils buying property at the market rate? Uh, I suppose that's uh, from landlords' perspective the most important question. Uh,
2: to my understand, to my understand, the local authorities are purchasing the properties at market price.
3: Okay, uh, and uh, what if uh, there's a, a second offer? Uh, <laughs>
2: Yeah, if, if, there is, if there is no compulsory purchase offer by any stretch of the imagination, so the landlord can choose to put the property on the, on the private market on the landlord. Choose, okay. Except the local authorities
3: system. All right. And as you're uh, saying today, uh, this has uh, supported uh, a number of individuals. Uh, but I, I think uh, you're probably more focused on what's going to happen this year and the targets for this year, because the targets for this year are very ambitious, are they not?
2: uh well, the targets that uh, well I believe the from my understanding there's about roughly two thousand properties in the pipeline that are due to be purchased since the inception of the, ski, uh, the inception scheme that's ranging from uh haven't been haven't been purchased but are kind of in the pipeline the the call we called for in our last uh, pre-budget submission is for the state to be a little bit more ambitious of purchasing half of the properties of where there has been a notice of termination citing sale which that roughly works out to
3: be about 5,800 okay so not ambitious enough in other words
2: uh, the reason, and the reason for this is, as kind of mentioned in the example with Aiden and Hazel, the tenant in situ scheme really stands out as a practical solution, and it really, and it's and it's extremely helpful. It helps with the further socialisation of our housing stock. Housing stock is increasing the percentage of properties that are our social housing, and it also turns some fairly dire personal situations into stable, very stable living, living situations where. Of where in the case of Aiden and Hazel, they get to remain in their home, they get to remain in their community, they get to remain in their communities, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. none of those is when people ultimately leave their homes, they leave their communities, and so it's very much like falling dominoes in that case.
3: Okay, is there a universal approach to this? Do you think uh, across the country are all of the local authorities as interested as uh, the other, or is uh, this a-, a lottery based on your address?
2: Uh, well, in terms of, I wouldn't necessarily call it a lottery. It's, it comes down to a few, a few factors. Like, does, One, does the landlord wish, 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 wish to sell to the local authority? The minister had, I was at a briefing last year, and the minister has made it quite clear of encouraging local, encouraging local authorities to purchase properties, and I believe in a circular setting, it's at least 1,500 properties, so it's, the minister is quite quite clear on the local authorities to go ahead.
3: Okay. Uh, And this, uh, of course, can only apply in in the case of a a valid notice to quit uh, because the landlord is is selling uh, and will be happy to sell in some circumstances, at least to the local authority, uh, because the tenants will be able to remain in in situ. Uh, But I'm sure, as always, uh, that last year, uh, you've heard uh, from people who've been asked to move out, but the notice to quit was not valid uh yeah we can yeah we came across that uh, plenty
2: of uh, plenty of those cases of where the what well, the, the notice didn't seem enti- entirely up to scratch and, and the job of I mean, its threshold advisors is to inform tenants of those rights and to kind of well one first basically make the landlord aware of this uh, so the landlord can potentially rectify this and if not done to then encourage or potentially
3: represent these tenants at the residential tenacies board. Okay, we have to leave it there, Gareth. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Gareth Redmond, uh, who is the research and policy officer with uh, the housing charity Threshold. Now, if you'd like to make a comment on our, our program today, our telephone number oh four one nine eight three two thousand. That's oh four one nine eight three two thousand. You can text or WhatsApp us on oh eight six one eight hundred six five eight. That's oh eight six one eight hundred six five eight. If you want to send a text message to us today Uh, and indeed you can email michael at lmfm.ie your apologies by the way for the poor quality of the sound line or of the phone line and uh, indeed the poor sound quality of uh, the improved phone line Uh, we uh, (laughs) did struggle there a bit this morning apologies as I say for that. Now uh, as we've been uh, hearing this morning uh, the DUP have agreed to go back uh, to Stormont uh, Uh, at a secret meeting in a secret location with somebody who left uh, their phone on in the room. Uh, I take it that Jamie Bryson was at the end of uh, the other line and then was able to tweet exactly what was happening in the room. Geoffrey Donaldson spoke to BBC Radio Ulster earlier this morning about this. Well, Sarah, um, I am on this radio this morning
4: speaking openly to you These proposals will be published. They will not be secret. So people who use this word secret, that's not what this is about. Last night was a private meeting, um, uh, but the outcome of that meeting is now public. I uh, gave a press conference last night and explained to people what had happened. Uh, and uh, I will continue to operate in that vein. And I believe okay. uh, that we should be open and honest with people. And that is what we will be. Uh, and these proposals will be published for everyone to see. And I repeat what I said. Uh, let's. When the, the proposals are published, I expect that people will give their views on them. Um, but uh, don't listen to the speculation because much of it is ill-informed. Uh, wait until the, pub- uh, the publication of the proposals okay. and everyone can judge them for themselves and on their merits but I believe that taken together, uh, these proposals represent substantial progress for Northern Ireland uh, in a way that restores our place within the United Kingdom and its internal market and that is what we have been striving to achieve despite, I might say Sarah, others telling us it wasn't possible, we couldn't get change, there would be no renegotiation uh, we have managed to achieve all of these things, we brought Brussels and London back to the table and we have secured real change that will make a real difference for people in Northern Ireland.
3: Geoffrey Donaldson speaking to BBC Radio Ulster earlier.
5: Michael Michael Reid on on LMFM. An interesting
3: story in the Irish Times today based on a Freedom of Information request. Uh, It reports uh, that a €6 million funding request from the Road Safety Authority to hire additional staff as part of an expansion of its road safety media campaigns and a bid to reverse the surge in road deaths in 2023 was rejected by the Department of Transport. Further to that, we learned... This week, uh, that there are 104 fewer Gardaí policing the roads in this country than was the case in 2021. Let's speak to Susan Gray, founder of the road safety group Park, who's on the line. Good morning, Susan. Thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Um, It's been the worst year in a decade, 184 lives lost on Irish roads last year, up by 20%. Uh, Do you think uh, that, in part, it's attitudinal that uh, we have got to a situation where we're going backwards because we were progressing uh, uh, quite well, I think, over a long period of time?
6: Michael, actually, there's the death toll now last year is up to 188. The the Commissioner Drew Harris gave a presentation to the Policing Authority recently and he gave the figure of 188. Okay. That would suggest that another four per people that were seriously injured must have died. Mm. So it's at 188 now.
3: Mm. And that's, I mean, and people, are, people are often injured the- on the roads and you don't hear yeah. how serious the injuries are. They can be life-changing. Yeah. People can end up paraplegic and uh, you never hear about it. Some of those people pass yeah. away Uh, And uh, uh, it's possible as well uh, that uh, the four additional deaths uh, could have been from previous years, but as a result of injuries, incurred in-road accidents. No,
6: Michael. Um, um, If you die, if a person dies within um, a month, 30 days of the crash, um, then they're added to the previous month's figures. They're added to the figures. On the date that the collision occurred. So these four people must have be been injured
5: so last year injured okay. within a
6: month. Mm-hmm. So otherwise, they're not added to December figures.
3: Mm. Do you know what I mean? Sure, I do. And every death so a, is a death to so many. It had to yeah. have been mm.
6: very, very recent within a month.
3: Okay. Uh, uh well oh, uh, every death a death too many uh, and uh, every death leaves behind it tragedy uh, and people grieving of course and uh, it's irreversible uh, but why are we seeing this increase 20% uh, increase in the course of yeah. last year uh, here we're hearing uh, uh today about the road safety authority uh who was which was responding uh, to a call to come up with ideas. Uh, the Irish Times reporting on, on many of those ideas. Maybe we'll talk about them in a, a moment. Uh, but you've been highly, highlighting how there are so uh, fewer Gardaí on the roads than would have been the case three years ago. Do we know why that is the case? The person, the the
6: Commissioner keeps taking valuable members from our roads policing units. And at a, in a year, last year, in a year, we had 188 road deaths. That was the highest in almost a decade, Michael. So it just beggars belief why they were moving valuable numbers. And um, from July to December, we lost uh, a total of... Forty-six
5: members
3: in just six months, when road deaths were escalating at an alarming rate. Uh, do we know why? We do I, do, 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 I mean, were people redeployed, or was it that guardy uh, retired or left the force uh, and weren't replaced? Uh, and it was that they were part of uh, the policing or the road uh, policing unit.
6: You see, we don't know, we're not given that information. Some may have retired, some may have been transferred. We just don't know. All we know for sure is they're gone. Mm. And although the Powers keeps saying there'll be additional every time there's a an additional lot of Guardian finished training in Templemore, that more Guardi will be released from other duties and gone to roads, places. Hmm. We're not seeing that, Michael. Loads of guardy have been trained since um, in October and December. Why is that not freed up more guardy to put into roads places? Why are they continually taking ones from our roads places and not replacing them? And the most worrying fact is. We have now the latest official figures that we got, were saying there was six hundred and thirty-two members now in uh, Rhodes Place. In two thousand twenty-one, we have seven three six. So in just two years, we have one hundred and four less. Now, out of that six hundred and thirty-two members, we believe that's not a true reflection on the active members in Rhodes Place. Because that figure of 632 includes those that have been suspended, those on long sick leave, those on late duty due mm. to injury, FCAs. I could go on and on. on. Yeah,
3: maternity so in leave, In December,
6: whatever, we yeah. asked uh, Artisha Lear-Varadka to please, we can't seem to, to get anywhere with this, to get the number of active members. So we've asked Artisha to try to Delve to and ask he will if he can't get the answer, then there's no hope for any of us. Mm. How many of these Gar are actually active? So I think the problem's far far worse than we are even thinking. so we need the roads place Helen McEntee gave an interview on RT on Sunday uh, to she spoke with them um, justin McCarthy. Now, he asked her, "When are we going to see more Gardie added to our roads policing units?" She didn't answer that question. That's where we're in. When is competitions going to start up again? Ro- uh, roads policing competitions. You have to start set up a competition. Say Paula Hellman, the assistant commissioner of the roads policing units. Um, set up a competition. See how many. Are they interested in joining Roads Policing? I think a bit of training is involved, and then uh, successful applicants are placed in whatever units is decided to be, you know. Mm. But have competitions started. Once a competition starts, you're talking months before these successful candidates will actually Mm. be placed into. questions like that it's brilliant that the likes of you and you keep following our campaign thank you so much Michael and uh, Irish Times Irish Independent, RTE Highland Radio and Donegal there's so many Mm. KFM that are following this like right. you were lost well, so there's a lot of people, there's
3: a, a lot of people uh, who are following right. it, uh, because a lot of people have lost or know of somebody uh, who was lost on the roads and are concerned about other people on the roads and uh, mm-hmm. it's got to a stage where it, it's like going back to the 1990s where you turn on the radio in the morning and you're just hoping that you don't hear of another fatality but it seems almost inevitable that you will in the 1990s uh, it was a very dark period on Irish roads, and we saw. Uh, huge campaigns promoting road safety, uh, particularly from the Road Safety Authority. They seem to have died off uh, to a large degree, if not altogether. And uh, that was a a point that I was putting to the Road Safety Authority uh, on this programme some months ago and asking uh, if there was any connection between that and behaviour on the roads that people weren't being reminded of, of Uh, being road safety conscious and the consequences of not behaving the way we all know we should be behaving. Here we see today that the Road Safety Authority had looked for six million euro. That was to hire nine staff and to expand their road safety campaigns significantly. Uh, Do you think that we've let the ball drop?
6: No. No. The minister for transport had his good reasons to refuse this funding. Let's look into the road safety authority and see where all their funding, their millions and millions, is coming from, and see how they are spending that amount of money. That they feel the need to ask for more money. The MCT centres—it's appalling how they have been run. And RSA is in charge of them. The driving test centres, with waiting lists up to six months to get a driving test, been run appallingly by the RSA. So we have learner drivers that are continually being allowed to roll over their permits. With The Irish Times reporting a few weeks ago that Last year alone, they took an over half a million on no-shows. These are people that didn't bother to show up for their test. And the RSA are continually renewing their permits without effort telling these learners, you must turn up for your test or your permit will not be renewed. Now, Minister Chambers, after we met with him in October assured us that when the, the backlog of driving tests comes down to 10 weeks, which the say, has assured him will be, or they hope, will be down to 10 weeks waiting list by June, that he will tackle the no-shows and bring in legislation. That minister can bring in this legislation in the council. We don't understand why for... We're campaigning for this since 2013. The RSA has been promising that they will stop renewing learner permits to those that don't bother showing up since 2013. Here we are 11 years later. And all we keep hearing, Michael, is we will do this. We will do this. We want to hear. We have done this. This loophole is now closed, whereby the RSA will not be bringing in for... Half a million every year or more. We've asked Minister Chambers in a PQ through Catherine Murphy just a few weeks ago, when is he going to close this slip hole? Is he going to put a provision in this road traffic bill? The Minister failed to answer that part of the PQ. Parliamentary question mm. raised by Catherine Murphy. Mm. We still have great faith on Artesha, the Irvig-Arabka to to deal to ensure that his ministers actually address all the issues that we have brought to his attention last August and December. Okay. We're patiently waiting on a reply mm. from Justice Minister Helen Mackenzie and Senior Minister for Transport Jack Chambers on the recent issues and points that we've brought up asking for updates and updates it's no good michael we have heard it all mm. before that there's a review there's a working group set up there's a sub working group set up there's another review michael them words toss mean the pen and the long finger
3: mm. time marches so on let's
6: and, watch this space yeah. and let's see how artesia oh I think it will um, if it'll be successful in um, tackling all these problems because, okay. Michael, there's one thing for sure. The problems that we've highlighted, if they are sorted, and we're told they will be sorted shortly, if they are, it will make a massive difference to road safety.
3: Well, it's a matter of it life and death. So many no. lives. OK, it's a matter of okay, life and death, nice. very literally. Susan, thank you indeed for joining us as always. That's Susan thank Gray, you. founder of uh, the Road Safety Group, Park. Michael,
5: Michael Reed on, on LMFM. FM. Peter
3: McBerry of our sister station, UN05, joins us now. Good morning, Peter. I take it uh, there was a lot of anticipation uh, that the DUP may resume uh, their work at Stormont and allow the institutions uh, to be restored. But that is uh, the case uh, this morning. Is there any surprise at that? Uh,
7: no. As the, as the day developed, and good morning to the day developed, Michael, it became clear um, that that was the, the, the route that was likely to be taken. It became clear that the DEP were likely to give a strong indication that they would go back in the storm, although they would put some caveats and some commitments on it, um, mostly laying those at the door of the British government. And that's how that's how it's, it, it proved. You know, the... A lot of last night became, you know, at times a bit of a pantomime before mm. we got to the actual political political reality of it in terms of where it was and who was allowed in and, and, and um how people got invited and you know, even 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 the, the the choice of the of the venue for the press conference. I was there, Michael, until mm. um one o'clock so Jeffrey started this press conference mm. and it was in a distillery in um just between Charidoff and Balna Hinchler just as yet as you enter county down. But you know, and while while the meeting was ongoing, the media had moved from um, where the meeting was, a place called Larchfield Estate, um, where the whole weddings and events, the meeting was there, the media had moved on to there, in the hope that about quarter past half ten would be a press conference. You know, So we were there from maybe half nine, quarter to ten, until one o'clock, waiting on the DEP. Never totally sure that we were turning up, but... I didn't think, you know, as, a, as, a, as a teetotaler, that I'd be spending my Monday night getting a, getting a guided tour of a distillery from a man called Terry Cross, who owned it. <laughs> okay,
3: right. I'm afraid to ask for more detail. But this was meant to be a secret the... meeting at a secret location, but uh, it, it was. Neither was it. Uh, I mean, there were 50 protesters outside, uh, and Jamie Bryson was tweeting uh, a, a live broadcast, yeah. if you like, of what was going on inside.
7: It was and he claimed last night and has reclaimed this morning that everything he said was verbatim. And Jeffrey Geoffrey Donaldson, as part of that press conference earlier this morning, uh, said that actually that, that it was a total misrepresentation of what was happening inside. So we're not totally sure which of those two, those two, to believe. But regardless of whether the content is totally true, mm. the very fact that it was a secret meeting that there was so much care and effort that was taken and um, to keep the the, the destination uh, uh, quiet um, hmm. means that, you know, that it is very embarrassing for the DUP. Well, it also um, calls them to question how you? much
3: support or how much objection there will be to what the DUP is signing up to. You said that there were a number of caveats. There were seven caveats, really, weren't there? Or seven tests, as the DUP put it. Uh, do we know if they've been met?
7: So, Geoffrey said last night that they hadn't been all explicitly met, um, but that they believed that they had made significant ground Um, and that they were, you know, in totality, it gave them the position where they were um, able to go back again. We've had also Unionist leader um, Doug Beattie saying this morning that actually, you know, this is probably a situation in terms of the ground that the DUP has made that, in his view, could have been made without the collapse of Stormont. He believes that if the DEP had stayed inside that it still would have been possible to, to negotiate the, some changes and some ratifications, whether doing the Northern Ireland what's been done mm. over the last couple of years, the DEP obviously would uh, would totally disagree and, and would say that actually it's only through taking this action that they were able to, to show the strength of feeling within the unionist community.
3: All right. Uh, the big question... Uh, Here, there and everywhere across Europe, I think this morning, Peter, is where will the border now be between Europe and the United Kingdom? Everybody was under the impression that it was in the Irish Sea uh, and there would be uh, some allowances uh, with the green and red lines for goods traveling to Northern Ireland uh, from Uh, the mainland of Britain. Uh, But this morning, speaking to Radio Ulster, Geoffrey Donaldson said that that border is gone, that there will be no border in the Irish Sea. I think we can hear what he actually had to say now.
4: Yes, for the uh, movement of goods within the United Kingdom, the protocol, of course, imposed uh, severe restrictions on the uh, the movement of those goods. Uh, These new arrangements remove those restrictions. Uh, So So zero
8: checks, zero paperwork. Yes,
4: zero checks, zero uh, customs paperwork on goods moving within the United Kingdom. That takes away the border uh, within the UK between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. And that is something that's very important. Now, are these proposals perfect? Have we achieved everything that we wanted to achieve? No, we haven't.
3: That's Geoffrey Johnson speaking to Radio Ulster this morning, BBC Radio Ulster. Peter, uh, what does that mean? Can you explain that?
7: Well, there's been a few questions raised about this morning, people seeking further clarification. But if you listen to him, I like what he said was when 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 the lady interviewer Sarah Bratt, asked him, um, uh, would there be no paperwork? His response was no customs paperwork. Um, there have been people much more focused on the detail of these agreements uh, than me who are saying no customs paperwork doesn't mean no paperwork. Um, but, 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 so there may be some some you know. Some people may call it a fudge if we're opposed to it. Some people may, may may call it a very smart resolution to it. You know, likelihood in some area is that it's through the presentation of it, but it looks like there will still be paperwork, uh, possibly at the at the source um, end, okay. where it's coming from, but but not for not for customs, and that may allow. An element, you know, some people will say that you're 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 splitting hairs over it, but it would allow uh, people to present it in very different ways, especially if the political future depends on it.
3: A get-out-of-jail card to get back into Stormont to serve under a Sinn Fein first minister—how is that going to go down with uh, the DUP supporters?
7: Uh, Yes, there there will be some that will be. Resistant to it, and and, and won't, won't agree, and and still have that you know that, that long history and that feeling that um, that Republicans, because of the history of the troubles, shouldn't be allowed to hold political office. But the reality is, Jeffrey was asked about it last night, and and said that it was the outcome. Of an election, and that the the DUP as the Democratic Party would honour the outcome of an election. We thought at times over the past couple of years we might have another election, and that situation could change. But now that Stormont looks like it's going to get back up and running across the next week or so then the reality is that it'll still have a number of years left on the mandate, and should there be no more unforeseen problems, or should we be able to keep it between the hedges, as they say, Michael, then there would be serving on them. He was asked who the Deputy First Minister uh, would be, and um, he battled that question away in a single line and said, to The Lady Amanda Ferguson, who asked him, that that was a question for another day. Speculation that uh, um, a Little may maybe put in there um, as well, but you know we'll find that out over the next four or five days, just think.
3: Okay, no doubt some will regard it as a sellout. Is it possible to quantify uh, how many will feel that way, or do you think that Jeffrey Donaldson will be able to take the majority of DUP supporters with him?
7: Yeah, difficult to quantify in terms of in terms of politically, Michael. and that hundred and thirty people inside the room, you know, it's pretty clear that no one has yet revealed or been able to get a hold of the exact number. He might have voted for and he might have voted uh, 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 against there will be significant level of opposition within that room and then within the DEP voters. But um, you know, so Jeffrey was, was very keen to sell that last night as as having the backing of it very keen. When he was asked whether or not they expected people to come out in the next three or four days from his party and significant figures or big beasts as they know in his party to come out and criticize whether they were at, he said that actually they were they were um We're a democratic party, and I expect people to abide by the democratic vote. Again, he was clear to say that you know they don't engage in in censorship in that way, and that that people will all hold different views. That the DUP has been described historically as a broad church, but yes, even already this morning we 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 have seen from Jimmy Bryson and from others, we had the Orange Order who were speaking um, and released a statement last night um, saying that actually the DUP should only go back back whenever all seven tests were explicitly met. So we do expect some. Opposition, but there was opposition to one before it fell. You know, the, 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 the question is, can they make it? Can they make it work politically? And how do those who may be opposed um, to it um, choose to exercise and display that ex- opposition?
3: OK, Peter, thank you indeed for joining us this morning, as always. Peter McFerry of our sister station, U105. Michael, Michael Reed
5: on, on LMFM.
3: Hey, you may be interested to know that there's underground electricity cables in Dublin, plenty of them, in fact, and they're about to replace 50 kilometres of underground cabling. Uh, It's going to take up to five years to do this job of work. You may be interested to hear that, uh, but you may be annoyed to hear it if uh, you're one of the landowners on uh, the route of the north-south interconnector and indeed if you've got uh, a letter at this stage from Airgrid telling you that they're coming to erect pylons on your land whether you like it or not. Let's speak to AIM2 leader and founder Padre Tobin, a TD for A very good morning to you, Paddy Tobin, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. You've seen some of these letters uh, and there is little doubt, it would seem, from what you've been saying about it, uh, that Airgrid is determined to go ahead with this, as I say, whether people like it or not.
9: Yeah, so it is interesting that you mentioned the, uh, the reports about the underground cables going in under uh, in Dublin. And it's interesting that it was the NEPP campaign that really, I suppose, brought to light that these underground uh, cables were feasible and that also that they were uh, economically feasible as well as technically feasible. Um, and that's all they've been saying along the area is that 97% of the landowners along the cartilage of this um, proposed project have stated that it is economically and technically feasible to put these cables underground. And yet, for some reason, AirGrid is battling with um, these people for the last 16 years. And, and worse than that, we have ministers who come to the meetings and pledge support for the campaign to say that they're opposed to the overgrounding of these. And yet, these ministers are now in government presiding over the decisions that AirGrid. Uh, are making and you know I've saw letters which have been issued to the um, to the landowners just uh, in the last couple uh, of days and those letters are very stark. They in fact threaten those landowners that they must make a decision uh, positively. They must sign the documents before the first of March uh, or Airgrid will provide the ESB with details of the landowners who have not entered into those voluntary agreements. And that they would request that the ESB make a special order process to obtain compulsory easement and other rights um, over uh, the land. And, and that process and train a situation where the ESB will go make an application to the the, the Commission uh, uh, for Regulation of Utilities, and then a decision may be made uh, either in favour of the ESB or not in favour of the ESB. Um, but what it means is that these landowners will lose their rights in terms of who comes onto the mm. land potentially
3: so, or not. And so they don't need to go to court?
9: Well, it's, it's, it, seems, it's, it seems here that the, the, the letter states very clearly the ESP will undertake a consideration, a very request to make an application to the Commission for Regulation Utilities. Uh, for such a special order to be made. Okay. Now, I, and I no the, the
3: Commission, I'm sorry to cut across you, but yeah. just to understand that the Commission has that power, does it, or does the Commission have to take that request to, to the courts?
9: I understand the Commission has that uh, power. Right. Now, I do understand also that appeals can be made uh, to the courts as well. So I've no doubt that this, unfortunately, will end up um, in in the courts for many uh, farmers and landowners. But what we have is a, a state agency In direct conflict, in battle now with uh, uh, hundreds of people across the area Mm. who are law-abiding, decent citizens of this country, uh, who simply go about their business uh, producing food for society. Mm. And, you know, I I don't know what it is, it's thick-headedness or it's stubbornness within uh, Airgrid. They've, They've wasted massive amounts of money, a massive amount of years in the 16 or 17 year process at this stage. And, and here we are now with, with letters of, of threats going out. And remember. Well, there's no
3: surprise in this at the same time. I mean, this was uh, exactly what AirGrid said would happen uh, that uh, they uh, would have thought would have got court orders. Uh, but you're saying they can get one of these compulsory easements from the regulator, which in effect is uh, the same thing that they can come onto your land without your permission. In fact, you can't stop them. If you do stop them, you could end up being arrested and prosecuted.
9: Yeah, so we have potentially a legal threats uh, against people um, in relation to this. And remember, Airgrid does not operate in a vacuum. Airgrid simply implements government policy. It is government policy that this is happening. And you know, oftentimes, the government tried to create a paper wall between the actions of a semi-state such as Airgrid and themselves. Um, and if the government wrote into their policy that this must, uh, that these projects such as this must be undergrounded. Airgood would have no other alternative but to underground these particular projects, and you know there are significant fears around this. Um, you know, many many people are in fear that there's going to be a threats to the property of their homes, their farms, their businesses, the tourism, agriculture.
0: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support, 100% online So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
9: Bloodstock industry could be significantly affected. And indeed, every time we've asked AirGrids to carry out an investigation of the cost of this project, they've strategically left out the effects on prices of homes, farms and businesses. They've always left that out. And, you know, it's funny as well that letter, all, we, we had a discussion myself and yourself a number of months ago around the fact that AirGrid were throwing 40 million euros of taxpayers' money now in a bid to get farmers to take on these pylons. And the question arose at that stage, would there be, would that 50 grand per pylon be subject to a capital gains tax? And, you know, um, it, 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 this letter confirms the and the fact that this money will be subject to a capital gains tax. So 33% of the proposed, uh, I suppose, grants, if you like, for the, the, the location of these uh, pylons will be wiped out straight away. And that land will also lose value, which will wipe out further value uh, in, in terms of the farmers uh, in relation to this.
3: Now, well, the land is gone, isn't it? I, I mean... Um if you have a big electrical pylon on your land, uh, there's nothing you can do. I mean, you can't build a house on it. Uh, I don't think you'd have uh, cattle grazing on it. I mean, that portion of your land is gone. But, yeah,
9: look, I agree. You have a situation here where the plan allows for pylons and their cables to be located up to 13 metres from a person's home, which is an incredible situation. And remember, there's a significant... Um, level of electricity that's lost uh, from these cables. There was a, a wonderful uh, picture in the Irish Times a number of years ago where campaigners got a length of fluorescent tubing and stood underneath the existing uh, cables in Batterstown. And mm. the environmental electricity uh, in that picture which was taken at dusk. I remember Brian Fitzgerald
3: they'd... and I think Nikillian were amongst exactly. that group, yeah, uh, and they were able to light up fluorescent bulbs uh, by standing under it, wasn't it?
9: So there's, very, there's nobody going to be building a home next year near it in future. Um, I would also say there would be significant worry for farmers in, in actually using that land uh, as well. And you know, I would I would again appeal to the government. I would appeal to uh, Minister McEntee. I'd appeal to Heather Humphreys, two ministers in these area, in this areas that are on, in the cabinet, to actually make a decision at cabinet level to reverse Airgrid's plan to. Uh, go down this route because we're still not sure that this is going to be built. We're all we're sure of now that a conflict is going to arise between a semi-state and the people of Meath, uh, Cavan, Monaghan, uh, as well. So it, it is not too late for the government to do the right thing by these people. To look for it to be undergrounded, it will be as effective undergrounded. Uh, it will be it, it, it will be in the same financial ball, ballpark uh, undergrounded. And we can see today by the reports in the journal that it's happening in the capital at the moment.
3: Mm. Yeah, um, but that's not going to happen, uh, regardless of of whether there's any merit in your argument, the decision has been made, uh, and the plan is to proceed. So what do you predict? Do you believe that there will be protests, that there will be blockades, that the guards will be called? that people will be arrested. Is it possible that people will not just be prosecuted, but that they will be imprisoned for continuously trying to object to, to, to obstruct the work of Airgrid?
9: I think, in the main, the views of the farmers and the landowners that I'm speaking to is that they do not want to get involved in any of those types of actions. you know, These are people who uh, would be horrified in many ways of... That's potential type of outcome. These are people who want to do the right thing, want to campaign legally, democratically, etc. But unfortunately, because of the way that air grid is acting here and the, the letters and these threats and the, the orders for forcible easement onto farms, any one of those things that you've identified <clears throat> is a possibility in our county. And, you know, we as elected representatives of the people have a, have a responsibility to try and find a solution to prevent that from happening. And while you say, obviously, that uh, it may be unlikely for the governments to reverse on this, the fact is, I think it's still unlikely that we're going to see one of these built uh, anytime soon as well. So we're at a crossroads, and at a crossroads, you need calm heads to be able to make decisions uh, to avert any potential conflict. And, you know, the, the Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael ministers in this region have a moral responsibility to use their influence now to avert any possible conflict in the future.
3: Okay. All right, uh, we'll we'll leave it there on Airgrid for the moment. Uh, Briefly, before you leave us, uh, perhaps you'd like to make comment on the decision of uh, the DUP to take up their seats in Stormont.
9: Yeah, I think I'm I'm delighted that this decision has finally been made. Twenty months later, um, this decision has been made, and I actually think strongly that the the protests that happened by public service uh, unions, Uh, in the north of Ireland uh, in the last fortnight also had a significant effect in pushing the DUP over the line. The one thing that we in Aint are saying now is get this back up and running. But the government needs to change the law under which the institutions in the north are underpinned. They need to change the law that no political party can ever hold the north to ransom for 20 months again. Because if they don't, we're going to see this repeated and we'll be cursed to see history repeat over and over again. People in the south probably don't realise how bad things are in terms of the health service, housing, education, transport, poverty, drugs, uh, abuse. Things are tough in the South at the moment, but there's been a collapse in the fabric of society in the north of Ireland over the last 20 months, and it's down to the actions of the DUP. It should never, ever be allowed to happen again.
3: OK, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Thank that you. is aimed to leader and uh, founder, Pat Tobin, uh, TD for me, the West. Mary is in that boy. Mary has been texting us uh, this morning. Thanks for your message, Mary. She says, God rest all of uh, the people who have lost their lives on the roads uh, so far this year. I think it's less than 20. Why not look into the cause of these deaths and see if it's down to drink and drugs? What's the blame for most of these deaths? Are there other factors involved? She says, "I, I know speed, seed belts are up there as well. Why wait until the end of the year? We could learn something from these early deaths uh, I think there's probably a lot of data on all of that stuff and it's probably all of the above Mary Uh, John says the cause of most most accidents is bad manners Uh, I'm not sure that that figures into the official data John thank you for that Uh, a regular listener says I regularly drive from Mayo to the east of the country and back again across five counties and Through numerous towns and villages, and I see loads of crazy driving, speeding, vehicles going too slow, etc., etc. See absolutely no Garda presence, though. Hardly a single Garda or a single Garda vehicle, and I am known as a very observant person. I'm sure that's true, and thank you indeed uh, for your text to the programme today as well. John and Navin saying déjà vu, yeah, (laughs) to do with uh, the lotto. Uh, He's uh, giving out stink in a a text about how there was no winners for six months Uh, and uh, lo and behold he says all of a sudden there is a winner when people start giving out uh, and it's not the first time this has happened. Uh, He thinks uh, that The whole thing should be more transparent and that there should be a member of uh, the public at the draws. Paddy Duffy in touch uh, saying uh, that uh, he was in touch uh, about uh, the problems in Gaza yesterday. I can't remember. the. I'm sorry, Paddy. I did read that earlier. Um, I was trying to remember what it was uh, that you texted to us yesterday. Maybe you'd be good enough to text it to us again because we're going to be speaking to Francis Black about uh, the ongoing bombardment of Gaza. Stay with us.
5: Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. FM. Now we
3: all feel helpless watching what's happening in Gaza because the situation is hopeless. Well, that's been the situation up to now because there are reports today of a potential ceasefire, a 45-day truce which would see between 35 and 40 of the 136 Israeli hostages being released by Hamas, that would include the women, children and elderly captives who remain. Uh, during that 45-day truce, this deal, which is reported to have been approved by Israel, would lead to negotiations over a second phase, during which time Israeli soldiers and male civilian hostages Would be released. And then it's hoped that there would be a third phase, which would see the bodies of dead hostages being returned. It would also mean uh, if the deal is agreed to by Hamas that a significant amount of humanitarian aid would be allowed to enter into Gaza. Let's uh, speak to Francis Black, independent senator. Very good morning to you, Francis, and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, this is, uh, I suppose, the news that we've been waiting 16 weeks to hear.
8: Absolutely. I mean, it's it's very, very welcome news. Um, I mean, to see the devastation that's been going on in Gaza over the last few months has been horrific and beyond comprehension, to be honest with you. So this news today is very welcoming and I think that if I read last week that Hamas um, are going to be in agreement if there was a ceasefire to be had, so I presume they will they will agree to the ceasefire. So, look, it's, it's a little bit of light um, and hopefully the humanitarian aid at this point is probably... The most important thing for the for 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 the people of Gaza, um, and I'm still disappointed that countries like Canada, Germany, the UK, and you know the US and Japan have had had suspended funding to UNRWA, um, which is the specialist UN agency for Palestinian refugees. So, you know, um, but look, let's. Be positive today and say this news is very
3: welcome. The Irish Times is reporting that the main sticking point in this deal is a demand from Hamas that it would include a permanent ceasefire and international guarantees of Israel withdrawing all of its soldiers from the coastal enclave and that they would not resume the fighting. Uh, So it's not over the line yet Mm. uh, but we can hope against hope I suppose.
8: Absolutely absolutely we have to hope against hope at this point.
3: Mm. Uh, And uh, it it really is uh, up to Hamas uh, 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 in terms of how this is being reported Um, would you have confidence that Hamas would accept this deal uh, without uh, the guarantee of a permanent ceasefire?
8: Well my hope my hope, this would be my hope, Michael, is that they have a temporary ceasefire now. And while the temporary ceasefire is happening, that there could be talks going on with regard to a permanent ceasefire. I mean, that would be my hope. I mean, we all want a permanent ceasefire, let's face it. So, um, yeah, I, I I would, you know, I hope that Hamas are in agreement to the temporary ceasefire, and then the talks will continue. That's that's what my hope that we could, you know, this peace talks will continue at this time.
3: Mm. Yeah, um, I wonder if uh, Hamas is not annihilated as promised by the Israeli government. Uh, how that will go down um, with um, the normal Israeli people, uh, because. Uh, There continues to be a a lot of hurt and pain being felt there over what happened on uh, the 7th of October, which in itself was an atrocity.
8: Oh, yeah. I mean, look, you know, I mean, what happened on the 17th, there's no doubt about it, on the 17th of October was horrific for the the people of Israel. And, you know, we have to call a spade a spade when it comes to it. and I can't even imagine you know the heartache and the devastation for for those people who lost loved ones um and and again, of course, we have to talk about you know what's happened in Gaza it has been horrific and yeah. an ongoing you know bombing uh bombardment on a daily basis um and you know the the fact that the humanitarian aid you know hasn't been allowed in um I I, I think, has been, you know, horrific. Um, We saw scenes last week where the humanitarian aid was being blocked. um, And I can't even imagine what it's like for the people of Gaza. I know um, uh, families who have... have I know people in Ireland who have family in Gaza. And the heartbreak and the devastation that they're going through watching... Um, people being k- murdered and, and and women at this time, you know, having cesarean sections without any painkillers and uh, um, people getting their legs amputated um, without any painkillers because of the lack of medical aid. I mean, it, it, it's an absolute nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare what's happening over there. So you know, I'm I'm look. I, I mean, I welcome this news today, and yeah. you know, and, and I do think the ICJ court, you know, the court's ruling the other day was was, was very positive. And um, you know, the court the court voted fifteen to two to impose, you know, several pre- preventative measures, which mm. you know, mandate Israel to stop killing Palestinians and to stop blocking the delivery of humanitarian aid. And I think by imposing those measures, you know, the court is saying that. South Africa's charge against Israel is credible and needs to be fully investigated and that I know that process is going to mm. take years. Yeah. But it's it is a huge blow to Israel and its allies who've mm. made arguments about self defence that don't stand up to moral or legal scrutiny. And we have to we have to be mindful of that too, Michael, you know? Mm. I mean Of course. So, and I know, I know I also know that much has been made of the fact that the court, you know, didn't order didn't order a ceasefire and it didn't use words, but i d I'm very also very aware that International law experts said it was very unlikely to because, you know, the South African, I think even the South African foreign minister who was instrumental in taking the case said that the only way Israel can comply with the binding preventative measures ordered by the court is to stop attacking Gaza. And I obviously we'd all agree with
3: that. I I mean, what we've seen unfold. Mm -hmm. in front of our eyes has been beyond belief uh, despite decades of conflict. Uh, Long-lasting peace uh, is uh, something that uh, is equally unthinkable in this region as things stand, isn't it? I I mean, if this truce takes place, we're talking about 45 days, and that's a big if, uh, and then maybe Mm -hmm. it'll be extended, and then again, that's another big if. But Mm long-lasting peace Uh, is very complicated because we are looking at a a very complicated situation Uh, We have the Houthi rebels in in Yemen uh, attacking Mm -hmm. boats uh, in the Red Sea. Uh, And then we've the American-UK attacks on them. Then there was the drone attack, killing three American soldiers in Jordan on Sunday. Joe Biden Mm -hmm. uh, is to respond with military force, we're being led to believe. Uh, how is it possible to find a solution where people can live side by side do you think
8: well I think there's a long way to go obviously and you know I just don't think I'll be honest you know I think that the likes I think funding being taken away from the likes of UNRWA is very very worrying Yeah, and I think you know when countries as I said earlier like 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 you know, Canada and Germany and the yeah. UK and the US and Japan, they've all suspended the funding. Yeah. You know, like, I think that's that's extremely worrying. I mean, you have to look at, like, you know, allegation that, you know, Israel has been, you know, extracted from arrested Palestinian fighters who are being tortured. Yeah. You know, you have to look at all of that. And at this time, you know, we have to also look at how much disinformation Israel has put out during the last few months. Mm. You have to be mindful of that. So, and particularly around this UNRWA in particular, and, and you have to think yeah. about all of that. Even if it's true, defending an aid organization during a de- ge- genocide, when the people of Gaza are already heading towards famine,
3: mm.
5: it's,
8: it's collective punishment, which is a war crime. It, it,
3: it, no, it's pathetic. It's a war crime. Uh, uh, but it, it's pathetic uh, I- I- in terms of an international response to a report uh, which seems to uh, have merit that 11 members of UNRWA may have been involved in the October 7th attack. That's 11 out of 13,000. And for uh, these countries uh, to say um, that they're going to cut off aid and allow children to die of cholera or starvation is pathetic.
8: it's, it's, It's beyond belief. You know, and, and I think the, the, we have to take into consideration that before any of this happened, Israel have been creating war crimes. They're taking the land off the Palestinian people. They're moving in, they're, they're building their settlements. And I've said this to you before, Michael, they're building settlements that are like settlements that are like a neighborhood in Florida where they have beautiful fountains and swimming pools while all the time. While all the while the Palestinian people who are living in refugee camps and who are living in deprivation and their water is polluted and and you know electricity is getting cut off and you know they're not allowed build on their own lands, their farms are taken off them. It's war crimes on a daily basis, and there have been no consequences whatsoever to any of this. Uh. Which is like there's something. We have to be we have to be mindful of, of all of that, yeah you know and and I'm very look, I'm happy that Ireland said it will continue to you know fund unrest. I think it's very good, but we have to do more. Ireland needs to do more yeah, talk to us and about I what think, more
3: we can do i mean uh, I think
8: we need to increase funding, I think yeah. we should be outspoken about the total moral collapse of some of our European and North American allies, hmm. you know. And I think that's really important. And I think we need to support the ICJ. You know, we need to support South Africa in the ICJ case. As far as I know, there's yeah. a motion coming in today. Um, We need to, you know, we need to make that strong intervention siding with South yeah. Africa. It's, it's disappointing that we haven't already voiced our support at yeah. this time. And we will, and we'll hear
3: uh, lots more about that. That's the Sinn Féin motion that will call on the government. Yeah, to, to And I'm hoping that, that, yeah, they, yeah, that yeah. there's
8: cross-party... My mm. hope today, and I don't know what's going to happen, but my hope today is that there is cross-party support. And that would be, mm. oh my God, that would be just a huge signal to send out yeah. to the Palestinian people, because... You know, they they need countries like Ireland Mm. to get behind them.
3: And what about about St. Patrick's Day? Can can the Taoiseach influence American foreign policy when he meets Joe Biden on St. Patrick's Day? And undoubtedly, he will meet Joe Biden, regardless of what people think of of that. Uh, But, I mean, Joe Biden uh, has his own uh, problems to face going into an election where Mm. he'll be looking at uh, Donald Trump, who will back Israel to the hilt.
8: Well, I mean, you know, he, Joe Biden is 100% behind Israel at this point. Yes. And I think it should be pointed out to President Biden that his, first of all, that his cutting to UNRWA will lead to the deaths of thousands of Palestinians to starvation. Mm. And, you know, this should resonate with someone like whose ancestors had to leave Ireland because of genocide mm. when you look at Angurtha Moore. Mm. So whoever goes to Washington, and I would encourage our government. To really raise the issue of U.S. support for a war where thousands of innocent children are being slaughtered by U.S. weapons. I don't know how they can put their head in the pillow at night. And I think the most effective ways, the most effective ones to raise this issue should be the Tanish, the or the Taoiseach. And I think they should, you know, they should be asked, will they raise this issue as this issue? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They need to be Pressure on President Biden to say enough is enough, and they, you know, like the weapons that Israel are using in killing children are coming from the US. You know, and he's and, and Biden is supporting that. He, he need, I, I genuinely believe he needs to be called out. No doubt about it.
3: Okay. Francis, we leave it there for the moment. Uh, We'll hope uh, that uh, there is a a truce of some sort uh, in the coming days uh, because what is happening is unthinkable and uh, beyond the comprehension of any decent uh, thinking person listening to us today. And thank you, as always, for joining us on the programme.
8: No, thank you very much, Michael. I really
3: appreciate it. That's Independent Senator Francis Black. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. FM. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments uh, that I have here. Uh, Navin listener wondering if uh, landowners can't take a, a case to European courts to prevent air grids, pylons from being erected on their land. Uh, surely they'd have a case, says our listener. Well, it's one route. I don't think that has been tested yet, and I do think that Uh, They've exhausted all of uh, the legal options open uh, to them in uh, this state and across uh, the border because it's a cross-border project and uh, that planning permission has been granted in both jurisdictions. It has uh, the support of uh, both uh, the Irish government and of Stormont and it's full steam ahead as things stand. But it ain't over till the fat lady sings, as they say Navin, listener Noel has been in touch with us, too. He sent us a WhatsApp message and he says, hi, Michael. The speed of traffic on the Bally Road, cars, including construction lorries, are going at speed that is far over the limit. It's like a speedway. When I rang the RSA a while ago, they said to get in touch with the local radio and ring the Garda. The Garda that I'm speaking to on that occasion asked, how did I know that the vehicles were speeding? (laughs) <laughs> okay, I'm I'm not sure what to say to you. No. Um thanks uh, for your message. I think uh, probably as well uh, for people to. Uh, make up their own minds as to what you should have said to the guard. Uh, Sean, uh, thank you as well for uh, getting in touch. Uh, Sean says, uh, how many times in Northern Ireland uh, or how times have uh, changed in Northern Ireland since James Craig and Basil Brooke? It must be stomach churning for some unionists to see a Shinner Act as First Minister for what they call Ulster. It'll be interesting to see if Donaldson can keep his party united, most of all. What are the changes made to the previous binding EU agreement that made this possible, asks Sean. I think a lot of people are asking that question today, Sean, from what I'm hearing. Uh, Thanks uh, for your text. Uh, Back uh, to bad driving, bad habits and uh, uh, danger on the roads. LED headlights, somebody else says. They're an accident that uh, is just waiting to happen. Yeah, we had a a call about that the other day, that it's uh, these very bright lights uh, that uh, you'll see blinding you as you're driving when people don't have their full lights on. It's these LED lights, uh, apparently. Uh, And they are causing problems for other road users uh, as to why um, they're legitimate, I, I, I don't know. Um, but thank you indeed for pointing that out to us once again. Our phone number oh four one nine eight three two thousand text or WhatsApp 0861800658 email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM FM. The HSE is concerned about your children. The reason they're concerned about your children is that they're worried that your children may end up contracting measles. There's been a significant increase, they say, in the number of measles cases across Europe... And particularly in the UK, Dr. Suzanne Cotter is a consultant in public health medicine with Public Health HSE Dublin and North East and joins us now. Good morning to you, Dr. Cotter. Thank you for joining us on the programme this morning. Why is there so much concern about measles? A lot of people listening to us would have had measles growing up themselves as children and would think of it as a fairly mild, innocuous disease.
10: Yeah, good morning, Michael. Thank you for having me on. Measles M- M- was a common, everybody got it before the vaccine was introduced back in the 1980s, but it was a very infectious and very dangerous um, disease to get, even at that time. Um, it, uh, but once the vaccine was introduced back in 1985, and then the MMR was introduced in 88, we actually saw relatively few, and so people have forgotten the severity of the disease because it can cause um, complications in terms of pneumonia, severe um, um, ear infections. It can cause an encephalitis and diarrhea. And people children, to be really miserable with it. Mm. Um, and the reason that we're concerned at the moment is because an uptake of two doses of vaccine of the MMR is needed to give 99% immunity to the individual. Okay. Um, unfortunately, in recent years, since just, so really during the pandemic years and particularly now, the uptake is less than 90% nationally. And in many areas, it's down in the low 80s, including in the Dublin and North East area.
3: OK, so and what does that mean in yeah. terms of, uh, mm-hmm. uh, sorry to cut across you, what does that well, mean in terms of herd immunity? Are you still um, at risk of getting measles even though you've been, Um, vaccinated, you've had your two MMOs, your child has had their two MMOs, but is there still a a risk of catching measles uh, because we're below that 90% threshold?
10: So The main risk is actually to the individuals, to the children who haven't had the vaccine. And there are a lot of them. We've actually got probably thousands in the country who have either received no vaccines or just one dose. So that means there is a lot of susceptible children in the community and it's possible that the parents don't realise or have forgotten that they're not actually fully vaccinated either because, you know, due to the pandemic, I suppose there are a lot of issues in terms of everything was thrown upside down. You know, getting to the GP, trying to juggle work, trying to juggle vaccinations. And so there, there are many children who just didn't get their vaccines in the past four years and so they're the ones that we're really particularly worried about because some of them haven't had one dose and mm. some of them haven't had, you know, the two doses. So the first dose is given at 12 months of age and the second dose is given between four and five years five years of age when the children are in kind of the, you know, preschool, early, early school years. Mm. But the first dose gives children at least about you know a a 95 percent protection but it doesn't protect them all but it's really important to get that first dose in and for those that have had the first dose then to make sure they've got the second dose
3: can you get that at any age Uh, i mean if you have a a child six seven years of age uh, who hasn't been vaccinated yeah
10: absolutely Mm -hmm. it's not too late if your child has not received it so the vaccination program catch-up is free up to the age of 10 years so, you know, if your children are, you know, missing any of their vaccines, you know, you can get them free of charge from the GP up to 10 years of age. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're really trying to urge parents. And um, if your, if your children haven't been vaccinated, Get them vaccinated, mm. particularly with the MMR at this point in time. Can you reassure people, people
3: that hard. the vaccine? Sorry again, Dr. Clark, yeah, but can, no you re- can you reassure people that the vaccines are, are safe? Uh, because I think we have a lot of people uh, who've moved to this country from Eastern European countries. In some of those countries, people were used as guinea pigs. Uh, uh, as you know, uh, That a lot of uh, experiments uh, were done a- on people uh, that went terribly wrong. And they have an awful fear of vaccines.
10: Uh huh. The MMR vaccine has been used in Ireland since the late nineteen you know eighty eight. Okay, and it's very safe. It's very effective, and we've seen the impact, the positive impact of having the vaccination program, by not seeing a whole load of measles cases. So I don't know if any of your listeners remember back in about two thousand, there was a big measles outbreak in the Dublin area, with one thousand six hundred cases reported. It was massive, and it was it happened because. There had been a decline in the vaccination uptake. And as a result, there was a lot of vulnerable children. And we had, unfortunately, three paediatric deaths that year. Mm -hmm. You know, I think two in the immediate year and one the
3: following year. Well, I was just going to say that that you spoke about uh, a lot of the negative Mm -hmm. impacts, uh, which really sounded very unpleasant. uh, But uh, Mm -hmm. it's not unusual for somebody with measles to be hospitalised. And it is possible for people to die as a result.
5: It is.
10: Unfortunately, yes. So of um, hospitalization is not uncommon, particularly in less than one year age group and in the older age group. Usually, actually, uh, individuals who weren't vaccinated, if they're older than 20, are more likely to be hospitalized as well. But it has serious implications in terms of, yes, hospitalizations with pneumonia, with encephalitis, with severe dehydration resulting from, the diarrhea that they can get yeah. and they really get an inflamed gastrointestinal system because they can't drink because they have diarrhea and it's really, really nasty. And then the encephalitis is a severe consequence and uh, about one to three per thousand cases can get that, you know. Oh God, and goodness. you can get it immediately and you can also get this phenomenon that's called um, SSPE. So it's a delayed encephalitis that's particularly risky for young babies that get measles and about seven to ten years later um, and it's rare but it has been seen and i've seen cases where they get this kind of deterioration of the neurological system and it's horrible you know and we don't wish any child to get measles
3: completely preventable Yeah, Yeah, i I started off by saying the hsc was concerned uh, about people's children i think parents should be concerned about their children and the uh, wise parents listening to us this morning will make sure that their vaccines are up to date given everything that you've said to us and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today That's Dr Suzanne Cotter Consultant in Public Health Medicine with Public Health HSE Dublin and North East Now, uh, as usual around this time time for us to visit uh, the Garda Crime Desk As usual, there's a number of incidents Guarantee are investigating locally which perhaps you can assist with. We're joined by Garda Kate Patterson of the Community Policing Unit in Dundalk uh, from Dundalk Garda Station for this week's report. And we're going to begin with a number of burglaries that occurred in King's Court at the beginning of the year.
1: Sorry, good morning, Michael. Um, yeah, so start off with a couple of burglaries that took place in the Baileybury District. district. Um, we're seeking the assistance of listeners on the Mead sort of cabin border in the investigation of these three burglaries. As you mentioned, they took place in Kings Court on the evening of Saturday the 6th of January. So the first Saturday after Christmas. Um, all burglaries occurred between 5pm and 7pm, whilst the occupants, of one house in particular, were at mass. A substantial amount of money was taken during the course of the burglaries, as well as some farming identification documents. Um, Entry was gained to several of the houses um, using a screwdriver to pop open the lock on PVC doors. We do believe that a silver car, possibly an Audi A4 or possibly a Volvo S80, with three or more men on board, which was seen in the area at the time, may be connected to these crimes. So if any of your listeners were in the vicinity of King's Court and came across this vehicle acting suspiciously or perhaps caught it on their dash cam, we would urge you to contact the Gardaí in Bailey Borough um, as you may be able to provide assistance in identifying the suspects. I'll just share the number for Bailey Borough with your listeners there, Michael. It's zero mm-hmm. four two nine six nine four five
3: seven zero. Okay. Now to an appeal. For anybody who may have witnessed a, a fatal road traffic collision, this resulted in the death of a young 25-year-old woman.
1: Yes, Michael, in very sad circumstances, the Garda in RD Garda Station are reissuing their appeal for information into the circumstances surrounding a fatal road traffic collision which took place in the Carnalogue area of Knockbridge in the early hours of Monday the 22nd, last Monday. Now, as you mentioned, a 25-year-old female lost her life when the vehicle in which she was travelling was involved in a collision with a tree. A second person, a male in his 20s, was removed from ambulance by the scene and taken to Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital for non-life-threatening injuries. This collision occurred just after 1.30am and road conditions were extremely hazardous at the time due to the storm. Um, Investigating Guardi are in the process of harvesting CCTV. But they would like to speak to anyone who may have witnessed the collision or anyone who may have been travelling in the vicinity of Carnalogue between Lyde Village and Shannon Rock during the hours of 1am and 3am on the morning of Monday, December 22nd. Anyone who thinks they might have captured the collision or even the vehicle involved on their dash cam is asked to contact um, RD Garda Station on 041 685 or if you want, you can always call the confidential line and the number there is 1800 One.
3: Now to a uh, burglary that uh, occurred in Dundalk yesterday evening.
1: Yes, Michael. So just yesterday past, detectives in Dundalk are currently investigating the circumstances surrounding this burglary in the Point Road area. It took place sometime between the hours of 3pm and 9pm whilst the occupants were at work. They returned from working at a local business at around 9pm and they discovered their home had been ransacked. Entry was gained to the dwelling via, via a rear patio door which was forced open and a substantial amount of money along with um, extremely sentimental jewellery was taken during the course of the crime. So Investigations remain at an early stage this morning and a technical examination of the scene is due to be conducted. Detectives investigating the incident are currently calling to homes in the area in a bid to secure any CCTV footage which may have captured those involved. We would also like to seek the assistance of the public and request that anyone in the Lower Point Road area of Dundalk between the hours of 3pm and 9pm yesterday get in touch with us if they believe they came across any suspicious behaviour. Also, any drivers in the area who may have witnessed something untoward are urged to check their dashcam footage and to make it available to us if they believe it can assist the investigation. Um, anyone with any information is asked to contact Dundalk Artist Station. And our number in Dundalk here is 042
3: OK, and if people can assist with uh, that investigation, I take it that they may end up assisting with uh, another investigation because you have a very similar burglary to report on again in Dundalk. This one, though, occurred on Sunday.
1: So similar circumstances, Michael, um, this burglary took place on Sunday afternoon, also between the hours of 3pm and approximately 9 or 10pm. Um, this incident took place in the Glenwood Estate, which is on the Dublin Road, whilst the occupants of this home were also at work. So similar to the previous burglary that was just discussed, the house was ransacked and a sum of money was stolen Anybody in the Glenwood or Dublin Road areas on Sunday past, in the hours, in the early hours of um, the evening or indeed the afternoon, you noticed anything strange is urged to contact us in Dundalk. Now, we must stress that they may not be linked, these burglaries may not be linked, but they did both occur in the early um, evening time or the afternoon. Both homes were accessed by the rear, both were ransacked and a sum of cash was taken We would urge listeners to please ensure that any rear access to your home is adequately lit and secured um, and alarms are fitted in a bid to deter these burglars. And as always, to please refrain from keeping large amounts of cash in your home.
3: Okay, uh, I think you're going to uh, relay the significant news announced uh, this week for people who didn't hear, particularly people living in Drogheda in County Meath who've been concerned over a period of time about Garda response times because they were in County Meath, but uh, the policing boundaries have been realigned.
1: That's right. So we can confirm that the Meath boundary realignment went live on Sunday at 7pm This has redrawn the boundary between the northern, western and the eastern regions and it means changes for the geographical areas policed by the Loud South Community Engagement Area, the Loud South Crime Area and the roads policing. So areas um, which are being affected include a portion of the town of Drogheda which was previously aligned to the old Ashburn Policing District. It is hope that by redrawing this policing um, landscape locally, the community will continue to enjoy the same levels of policing. Um, now, all details of this realignment are available on our local um, social media pages. So they're available on the Live Garda Facebook page and on the Mead Crime Prevention page. We also believe that this information will be made available on the Garda website in the coming days. So that's www.garda.ie. There hasn't been any disruption to the service, and we do anticipate that this will enhance policing and response times in the area going forward.
3: Okay, and we we'll give another website, uh, which is publicjobs.ie, because the Garda Síochána is currently recruiting. If anybody fancies the idea of becoming a member of uh, the force, publicjobs.ie. But we have just a de- week
1: left. Just a week oh, left a in week this left. campaign. Yeah, so it closes next uh, Thursday on the eighth of February. So applications are sought from anybody up to the age of fifty our age limit has increased um, and okay. our recruits are being paid and increasing their training alliance. So, €305 Euro a week. Thanks, Michael. Thank
3: you. Garda Catherine Take Patterson, and Invent Dog. Thank you. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The
2: Michael Reid Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.